Hey everyone, it's Sam here. Welcome back to another installment of Puchica Voz. This time, this episode is going to be another part of our interview series where we're interviewing Central Americans who aren't from areas that we generally associate with Central American migrants. So today I have the pleasure of being joined by a guest. Guest, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, hello. So my name is Stephanie and I'm an Hondureña Americana from Salt Lake City, Utah. And both of my parents are from Honduras. So my dad is from La Ceiba and my mom is from the San Pedro Sula area. And I guess another thing about me is I'm a PhD student in psychology and yeah, that sums it all up, I think. Hey, nice. Have you wait, have you been to Honduras? I have. Susan. Yeah. Nice. I wasn't able to go um until mm-hmm. I was like 16, but then mm-hmm. since that like first time, like I try to go every other year if I can. Oh, that's that's sweet. I'm happy you've been able to go. Yeah. No. It's definitely <laughs> like I'm trying to go again this year. Um, mm-hmm. So vamos a ver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's all up there. Hopefully, it happens. Yeah, <laughs> you're putting it out there. It can, ha- yes, it can happen. Putting it to the universe. <laughs> okay, um, so we're gonna go ahead and do shits and giggles. So a shit is something bad that's been going on either in your day or in your week, and a giggle is something good that's going on in your week or your life right now that you'd want to share. Okay. So would you like to go first? Yeah, I guess. A shit would be, um, I mean, it's like finals right now, so, and this is my first time, like, I have my finals, and I'm teaching, so I also have to, like, grade my students' finals, and just, and, like, I'm still expected to do research all at the same time, so it's, like, a lot to juggle at one time. But then I guess a giggle with that is because it's like the end of the semester, I get to go home on, so like I'm flying home on Thursday. So I'm really excited because it's like my parents are having a 30th anniversary party and like my tias are flying in and like my brother's flying in. So it's going to be like a mini family reunion. So that's going to be like hella rejuvenating. (laughs) (laughs) That's really good. I'm sorry you're going through it right now. I feel like the end of the semester is always like a brutal time. Yeah. As a grad student, I can only imagine it gets worse because you have so many layers to it. No. But you have the trip to look forward to and you have family time and it's going to be a a pachanga. You know, y'all are all going to get together. Yeah. It's going to be good. No, definitely. Like, I don't know. I kind of feel like I'm in denial that everything's happening. Like... I don't know. Mm. I feel like with all the stress of grad school, you just, like, grow numb to it. And then, like, but then (laughs) with that, too, like, I know, like, once I'm home, it's going to feel, like, ten times more amazing. So. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) Do you feel like it's just, like, you're just jumping hurdles at this point? Like, you're just like, all right, next one, let's go, let's go, let's go. (laughs) Like, it's just, it doesn't stop for a bit until it stops. Basically, but kind of, like, grad school, like, never really stops stops <laughs> like you like, oh, no. <laughs> you like think that you're gonna get to breathe but it's like nope next yeah. thing like I don't know it's wow. yeah I mean I definitely like like when I go home I'm gonna try to like 
take some days off but even then like I'm still gonna be working on some finals when I'm home I'm still gonna be like doing like virtual meetings and stuff but I'm gonna try to like take weekends and stuff to like just enjoy my family time and like try to shut off act like academia isn't there (laughs) no yeah that's totally fair I think that's a healthy approach to reclaiming your free time yes as a grad student you don't get that i feel definitely <laughs> uh, that scares me i'm like uh, <laughs> do i want to give up my life like that no but i think it's really rewarding too <laughs> yeah we could definitely talk about more talk about all that more later because i have a lot yeah, of shit to definitely. say about it so <laughs> <laughs> no yeah i have a lot of questions to ask yeah <laughs> okay so my shit um I guess I feel like I'm falling into a bit of monotony with work. Mm. I still like it a lot, but I'm just like, all right, um, when's the weekend? Yeah. (laughs) Like, when am I off? But I think it's it's part of, I don't know, capitalism and just it's part of my little struggle right now. But I I think I find joy in the fact that it's not permanent. Mm, You know, like I never see myself as like. I am forever stuck at this point. Like, nah, there's there's room for mobility and, like, growth. Yeah. It's just a matter of, like, channeling and efforts to get there. Definitely. I think it's weird how, like, when we're younger, I feel like we get socialized into thinking, like, you pick one job and then you, you do that job until you die mm-hmm. or retire. And then now, like, <laughs> as an adult, it's, like, or trying to be an adult, you, like, realize that, yeah. oh, yeah, like, I can shift around and try different things. No, yeah, I think it's, like, all about the mentality you have about it, too. Because I'm sure there are plenty of people who do feel stuck. Mm -hmm. But recognizing that you do have a a bit of agency and you can, you know, create a path for yourself. I think that's something that I feel like a lot of my peers have that mindset. And I think it's a good shift. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so what song have you brought for us? Oh, I know. What's your giggle? Oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, well, I think my giggle ties into the the channeling efforts. Like, oh, okay. I'm really looking forward to this next week, in the sense that it's just gonna be an opportunity for me to make plans that I have going on, you know, into tangible things, like actually getting them done. Beautiful. I think that's that's my giggle. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so yeah, what song did you bring for us? Yeah, so I decided. Um, I was, like, debating between different, like, genres, but I decided to go with um, La Diaspora by Nitty Scott, who's an Afro-Latina rapper from Brooklyn, I want to say. I probably need to check that, because now I'm thinking, (laughs) yeah, I think it's Brooklyn, but she's dope, so. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. How did you find out about her? Yeah, so... My friend Marlene always posts stuff about Nitty Scott on social media. And so mm-hmm. that's like the first, like she posted this music video um, on Facebook. And that was like the first time I saw it. And that's why I told you to watch it because it's like the most yeah. beautiful music video I've seen in a long time. So I think if anybody has like seven extra minutes, they should definitely watch it because it's like a mini movie that's just beautiful. And I feel like really rejuvenating i guess i definitely recommend it (laughs) yay awesome yeah we're gonna provide a link for that video just because we really want folks to check it out it's a really dope video and like you had mentioned this a bit about how it represents a a reality where like colonization didn't happen yeah so like i was because after i watched it i like wanted to like i searched for like what nady scott was like thinking behind it and she said that she just Mm -hmm. wanted to take people to like an Afro-Indigenous land 
that wasn't touched by colonization just to kind of reclaim that joy and like make us remember what life was like and can be like without white supremacy. I don't know, like I think with the way the political climate is now, I think it's really easy for us to um, get kind of pessimistic. I know it is for me, Um, but then I think stuff like this is really important because like my friend said one time, part of white supremacy is keeping us from imagining like what life could be like outside of white supremacy. And I think this is just like one way that she's like helping other people imagine that. Um, White supremacy is rooted into a lot of aspects of our lives. So Mm -hmm. the idea that we can escape it and actually talk about what it is to have a reality that escaped from it. I think it's a very powerful image. Yeah. And I highly, highly recommend folks to just go in on projects like this that imagine a reality without colonization. Definitely. Because even though it's like a dream of sorts, it's like, nah, like it could have been like this. And it can be. Yeah. Like maybe not in our lifetime, but I still think like Mm -hmm. that shouldn't keep us from like striving for that. Yeah, definitely. All right. So we're going to go ahead and listen to the song now. This is La Diaspora by Nidhi Scott. Yeah, that that video is so dope. I think she does like a really good job of storytelling mm-hmm. and also just visuals. Like the whole green thing. I'm really into like nature and plants, so like the whole green untouched nature is just beautiful and then the colors and the the scene mm-hmm. with like the ceremony of sorts. Yeah, that's what really what I loved about it is just like the rituals that Mm -hmm. like i mean in the music video it's like they're welcoming her into the tribe and like introducing her to all these sacred like rituals of the tribe so i just think it's beautiful i think it's just like her way of like connecting to her ancestors and Mm -hmm. i don't know i just think it's it's gorgeous all around (laughs) yeah it definitely is it reminds me a lot of mia because mia does a lot of like politically motivated videos and visuals and just it's i don't know it's really astonishing to see this reality yeah. come to fruition i think it's hilarious when people are like like expecting like artists or like famous people not to be political yeah <laughs> when really like they should like since they have such a huge platform they should i think that they should if you like have so many people like listening to you like you should take the opportunity some of them feel that maybe they shouldn't speak on certain things so i get that but at the same time, it's like if you have the ability, like if you come from a certain community or like yeah. a background or an identity, you should. Yeah. <laughs> 
since we're doing this interview series based on like folks who aren't associated with like central american hubs i guess the the straight up question is where are you from you know like where did you grow up where are you living now you know what was that like for you yeah so i was born in salt lake city um Mm -hmm. and then i grew up in a suburb that's like 20 minutes outside of salt lake and so then i want to start by asking you like what you know about utah if anything i hear the salt flats are really 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 aesthetic (laughs) and (laughs) um, a lot of uh mormonism yes and (laughs) i think that's about it (laughs) yes just like hella problematic it's like (laughs) nature mormons like that's all i've heard I mean, I feel like that sums up a good chunk of it. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> well, what? That's funny that you bring up the salt flats because that is on like my Instagram page like all the time because uh-huh. everyone goes there to take photo shoots. So yes, that's definitely a thing. But yeah, like it really. I mean, there's definitely a heavy Mormon influence in Utah. So growing up, that definitely colored <laughs> my experience. <laughs> I would say because like my family. I mean, we were, like, one of the only families of color. Like, I was checking, actually, like, stats about the demographics of the suburb where I grew up. Yeah. And I think, so now, if I remember correctly, it's, like, 96% white now. And it's gotten, Mm -hmm. like, more diverse from when I lived there. So I'm pretty sure, like, when I lived there, it was, like, 98% white. Wow. Um, So we were the only, like immigrant family and then and the family of color and in my neighborhood we were like the only non-mormons and Mm -hmm. in mormon culture like the church is super super tight-knit so it's like everybody knows everybody in the community so it definitely like stood out that we were the only family that didn't attend church with them with that came a lot of ostracizing in a way yeah just i guess people since like they didn't know, like, how to approach us. Yeah. Because I guess, like, Riverton really is... So, Riverton's the suburb that I grew up in. And it mm-hmm. really is a bubble. So, anything outside of that bubble is just, like, what is this? So, like, I remember when I was really little, kids, like, n- could see that I wasn't white, right? But then they were still, like, learning what race and ethnicity was because all they saw were white people. So then I had kids ask me, like, are you Asian or are you African? Just trying to, like, reach for whatever they knew was different Mm -hmm. from them. And then, like, when I'd say, like, oh, like, my family's from Honduras, they'd be, like, like, the kids and the adults would be, like, oh, like, is that in Mexico? Like, what city of Mexico is that? Or, like, where is that? So it was a lot of, like, stuff like that and... Just, like, different messages that, like, my family and I were different. Mm, I see. So I want to ask, since you pointed out that, like, 95-plus percent of the demographic of your hometown is white, how did you feel that whiteness was fabricated in that space and also preserved? You know, how did you feel? (laughs) I mean, obviously, like, the clear example is what are you? You know, like, these kind of questions that you were getting from, like, a young age definitely implies the other and like construction of the other so yeah like how did you notice that and or when did you notice that because i know that it's not something we challenge until we're older and we're able to like 
grasp topics to talk about it yeah but yeah that's a very good question and i don't know how i want to approach it because <laughs> <laughs> no, i can yeah, take that's it fair. so many different ways um, <laughs> especially because like this is like what i study now so it's like yeah so the first time i like noticed that i was different was actually like my first day of kindergarten because mm. i was super super stoked for school like my mom's a teacher and so like she got me she would always like every day like give me lessons and made me kind of fall in love with school from a really early age and so, like, once I was actually old enough to go to school, I was super excited. But I remember, like, waiting outside of the bus and I saw, like, all the other kids. And I realized, like, I didn't look like any of them. <laughs> Why don't I look like these kids? You know? Yeah. So that was kind of, like, the first time I was just like, mm, one of these things is not like the other. <laughs> and then yeah. it kind of... I don't know it just followed me obviously because that's like what I knew so in ways it was like hella like sad honestly like when I think about it because I know a lot of women of color we internalize that like white beauty is like the standard in middle school like I would spend two hours every night straightening my hair like wearing blue eye contacts and I don't know, just doing like what I could to try to like assimilate, even though I wasn't consciously realizing like, hey, I'm trying to look white. Like that's what I was yeah. doing, you know? I guess like I was, I would distance myself from my Latinidad. Like for instance, I don't know, it was kind of weird because it's like, I was never like, I was proud. Like when people would ask me like where my family is from, I always was like, I thought it was cool that like my parents were from Honduras. Yeah. And like, I thought it was cool that like, my family had like awesome like dance parties and no one else's family did <laughs> and just like little stuff like that but then but at the same time it was kind of like in some ways i was like ashamed i guess because it was just like when i realized like oh like my family doesn't do everything like everybody else yeah it was more like subtle things that all added up you know yeah. now like what about now that you're able to go back? Because, I mean, you are going to go back to... I'm guessing your family still lives in the same suburb. They do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, like, now that you're going to go back, you know, how do you how do you feel you're going to approach it like that? You know, how are you going to navigate this space that, to an extent, were, like, microaggressions on your, your person, you know? Yeah. I mean, I definitely now that I've lived in a different area like I can see because I think a lot of times growing up I internalized it as like I was the problem but mm. then like now that I've like now that I live in Michigan and like I mean Michigan's still hella white but there's like more diversity here um yeah. like I see that it's like oh it's not me as the problem it's like people's biases and problematic <laughs> ideas <laughs> and so yeah. then like when I go back I can, like, distance myself from it. Like, if, like, someone, like, gives me my family a word look for, like, speaking Spanish. Like, when my parents speak to me and my siblings in Spanish and I answer in English, like, mm -hmm. now I can just, like, brush it off. Whereas, like, when I was younger, I couldn't. Because I was, like, I was trying to, like, survive, you know, like, in that space. Yeah. But now I, like, don't feel that need to assimilate as much. That's good. Yeah. That's actually like amazing that you're able to recognize what you were doing at a younger age and now you're able to brush it off and be like, Okay, well I am who I am and if you wanna have a problem about it, go ahead. It's not gonna affect me because I'm still gonna do me. Yeah. Um, it's definitely taken a lot of healing work, which has <laughs> been like brutal but like super rewarding in the end. 
No, yeah, I think it's it's definitely a process just because you you're recognizing just how much like emotional violence was inflicted. For them it was just like, oh, well, we're just you're just so different like, you know, and then you internalizing that whereas now you're able to just brush it off. I think that's beautiful and very powerful. But yeah. um I had a question about you mentioned Spanish and language. How did you notice, like, I, I'm guessing there were other Latinx folks in schools or, like, in high school, or was it just not <laughs> a thing? I mean, there were very, very few of us, like, mm. little mm -hmm. pockets. And what's interesting and, like, is that I didn't, like, see a lot of other, like, Latinx people until, I mean, middle school was, like, a few more people but I kind of thought I wasn't Latina enough to hang out with them and I'm still unpacking what that meant to me <laughs> yeah but yeah like for some reason I was like I don't feel like I can hang out with them that's kind of how it was like in middle school and high school with the sprinkle of us that there were but then it wasn't until college that I really like there still was like a small number of us but it was like the most Latinx people I've been around I also like started working at a high school which with predominantly like black and brown youth. The majority of my coworkers were Latinx. And so like that's when I started recognizing like hey, these people are like me and yeah. I can like be myself. What? <laughs> so, no, yeah, yeah, that that's that's really cool actually. Did you go to um college in Salt Lake City? Yeah. So like Salt Lake City itself, the mm -hmm. actual city is more diverse than the surrounding areas and it's like yeah. more progressive than the rest of utah the rest of utah is pretty damn liberal or not liberal sorry conservative the latinx population in utah is kind of like more in like the west and south salt lake area which i didn't grow up near mm -hmm. but then once i got to college then i was like in those areas more Nice. Did yeah. you end up joining any orgs in college, like identity-based orgs or like race or ethnicity-based? Um, our Latinx group when I was in college was really small and it was basically, it was kind of, I felt a little like stereotypical of just like, oh, like we're gonna have a fundraiser. It was all about like food and dancing, which like that's important, yes. But then it's just like, okay, like what are we doing to like help the Latinx community like are we doing community service there's like none of that critical lens that I was yeah. wanted so it wasn't until like my senior year of college that I worked for our diversity center so that's when I started doing more of that work but it really did come from just like surrounding myself with more Latinx people through work and then that kind of spilled into like my connections at school Ooh, I see. So I have a couple of questions now. That diversity center, was it like dedicated to outreach and improving the diversity rates at the university? Yeah, it was kind of messed up. So because my freshman year, we had a diversity center. And then mm -hmm. I don't really know what happened, like politics of the school that it kind of it was like shut down for my sophomore year and junior year. And then junior yeah. year, um, some students protested because there was some really problematic stuff that was said in like a newspaper article, like the school's newspaper. 
Mm -hmm. And they're like, hey, like, you guys are not seeing all of marginalized students here. They made a bunch of demands, and then one of the demands was, like, you need to bring back the diversity center. Because, like, the school was small, like, our diversity center encompassed everything. Like, I know other universities, like, they have, like, specifically an LGBTQ center. Then they have, like, Black Student Union and Mecha or whatever. They have specific designated spots for those, but ours was just, like, all in one. And then, so that's, like, where I met my boss, who was super dope. He's, like, one of my favorite people on Earth. And, like, my job was to increase, basically, visibility on campus by organizing different events on campus for the different heritage months. So, like, like how for, like, September, it was, like, all, like, Latinx events. And then October was, like, LGBTQ+. And just, like, going down the list of, like, all the different heritage months there are. So we just try to increase visibility on campus. But also, like, providing a space for students to, like, come hang out in the center and just, like, be themselves. I see. No, I think that's really awesome just because, you know, if it is a small school, then it's easy to feel excluded or unwanted or alone and so by creating these events you're able to like bring people to at least feel celebrated in a certain sense and so i think that's a really powerful way of like promoting retention a lot of students feel like oh, fuck this is so hard i don't want to be here or like school is really draining me and sometimes school can really become a place for celebrating yourself so yeah. i think it's really like wonderful that you were working in that shout out to you for that oh thank you yeah i definitely like college was where i like realized like all the messed up shit i went through and like all the messed up stuff in society because you know how we're Mm -hmm. kind of k through 12 they kind of like keep that information away from us yeah so then that's where like i really wanted to like help other people on their journey into like Mm -hmm. all of us learning about our liberation and oppression and all that so Yeah, I definitely made that a part of what I wanted to do, like, towards, like, the end of my college experience. Because, like, the beginning of college, I was, like, still super, super shy. This, like, passion that you had for, like, helping other people realize this, does this tie into with the work that you were doing at that school that you mentioned? Yeah, it was, like, a combination of my work and then what I was learning at school that really made me start getting more involved. Because, I mean, I worked for Gear Up, so it's, like, a college access program. It's targeted to help first-generation low-income students get into college. And then we know because of oppression that oftentimes those are, like, black and brown students. And so that's where, like, I started seeing, like, my students would share with me, like, a bunch of really, really messed up stuff that they were told in school by, like, counselors or teachers. I wanted to get more involved in education to try to do my part in, like, fixing that and also just, like, empowering students that, like, even if you are dealing with this, like, how can we empower ourselves to let them know, like, you're not going to stop us even if you might have all these, like, you might be racist and shit, but I'm not going to let that stop me from pursuing my dreams. If you're not going to help me, like, I'm going to go somewhere else. No, yeah, we have a similar program here that one of my friends actually works with. It's EAOP, which is like Early Academic Outreach Program. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's like based on statistics that students who are told about college access and how to get into college from an earlier age in high school can do it just because they're told constantly like hey these are the things you got to do these are the requirements you need to have Mm -hmm. and if you're meeting these you can make it and so I think that kind of work that kind of like putting it out there like hey you can do it I'm telling you from now like just take these next few years and like do these things and you can get there no matter what people are telling you 
Yeah, it's all about like making it accessible for them. They're not getting it from, or like a lot of the times, I'm not trying to say like there are like some amazing counselors out there, but like a lot of the times, like from like what my students were telling me, like some counselors told them, like, oh, you should stick to construction work. They would only give them information about community colleges and trade schools, which is like, that's important too. And I'm not trying to like act community colleges like less than four year institutions. But it's just like, we want to make sure like all the students know all of their options. They have all the choices available to them. And it's not like we're like specifically feeding them like a certain way. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, I think that's really good because a lot of times people, especially students of color, are told that their options are work, military, or a four-year. Yep. And, and so it just, like, shuts down a lot of people because they're just like, all right, well, I, I don't have the grades for a four-year, so I'm just going to go ahead and work or, like, yeah. whatever it is. And it's just really discouraging for people when you're told these are your only options and especially when you're told you're gonna work immediately after high school it's just like uh i don't know it it burns out the flame i feel for some folks yeah and then like and then teachers are like just like act like their students are like so unmotivated and like blaming all the behavioral problems on the student but like what are you guys doing to like help the students realize all that they can accomplish i feel like a lot of times like that's missing but then the teachers just put it all on the students when it's like it's your job to teach them so yeah again i know there's like a lot of amazing teachers i don't want <laughs> it to sound like i'm trashing on teachers because teachers are amazing but yeah no yeah but like <laughs> they are at fault sometimes with like the things they'll tell students especially like students of color or like first gen students who may not even know i don't know it's just it's complicated but they do valuable work they can also yeah. be at fault. <laughs> I just think about the kind of education that the teachers are also getting, like when they get trained. And mm-hmm. it's like all the research in education or like a good chunk of it that they use. It's like studies that have been done with middle to upper class white kids. And then they're like, hey, this is how a classroom should work. But then they like don't take into consideration all the different ways different students experiences show up in the classroom, how you can approach it. So I think, too, it like goes even further of, like, the teacher's education and, like, how, what are we doing to prepare teachers to, like, best help all of their students instead of just, like, giving them, like, one way of dealing with all these kids. The standardized approach isn't always the best. You got to understand that kids come from different backgrounds. Yeah. So what did you study in your undergrad? You know, what was your major? Was it also uh, psychology? Yeah, I double majored in psychology and sociology. Nice. I'm a sociology major. Hey. Yeah. I love sociology. Same. It <laughs> fucked me up. Right? <laughs> yeah. I'd leave class so angry. Looking back, I was just like, okay, why was I so angry? <laughs> it was like well, nothing I could change, but like just the the realization mm-hmm. was enough. I mean, it makes sense because it's like your whole entire world is, again, like we were shielded from all of the shit that goes on. Yeah. Or, like, the information was, like, kept from us. And then it's, like, given to you all at one time in, once you get to college. So it's kind of, like, a lot to take in. <laughs> and oh, I feel yeah, like our anger is, like, definitely, like, valid. Like, when you first learn that all these systems were set up against mm-hmm. you, I think it's totally valid to be really, really angry. For a while, I was just, like, so disenchanted mm-hmm. with everything. <laughs> I was just like, uh, oh, the world is shit. And society wasn't made for me and 
the fact that I'm in college right now is just like a huge like middle finger to the system because I wasn't meant to make it this far and yeah it was just a lot <laughs> yeah but, my family didn't like being around me <laughs> or like they just like we'd get because I was doing like the whole annoying approach of just like no one could tell me like I don't know I was very passionate and I'm still honestly like learning how to approach certain things the best way but like yeah when you're like first learning about these things no bullshit I don't know it's very no, intense yeah. <laughs> I feel that heavily. I was learning all of these things around the time of the the Ferguson events. Mm, and yeah. so a lot of conversations that I had with my family, I got really worked up over because I was just like, how do y'all not get it that this is like state level violence against black bodies? Mm-hmm. Like, how do y'all not get it? And I think it helped me in the sense that I'm able to have these conversations I still get upset because, you know, like, I have that passion for it, Mm -hmm. but I'm able to talk about it in a way where folks will understand it. Back then, I didn't... I would just get mad and just, like, drop it. I was that kind of, like you said, the annoying approach where it was just like, ugh, if you're not going to agree with me, I don't even want to have this conversation. Mm -hmm. And I just get so mad and, like, shut down. Yeah. That's what... Yeah. Yeah. I definitely feel like now I've learned to be more patient and i definitely feel like patience it's like if you're talking as like an i hate the word ally but like as a person that's like not part of the community that's being affected i feel like you should be patient because you're the one that should be having those conversations versus obviously like if you're a part of the community that's being affected like you don't have to be patient yeah like i've learned like talking to like my parents for instance my dad told me he's like you know i hope you know you've helped me see a lot of things differently So I think, like, I would just, like, want to see the change immediately from one conversation. But, I mean, it takes multiple conversations. Just, like, how it takes, like, multiple... Like, we didn't learn through one conversation all about state violence. I definitely, like, learned to calm down. (laughs) Yeah, same. I think it just took a while for me to be, like, all right, recognize that your anger lies in your passion for this subject. But not everyone has that passion. And you only got this passion because you were able to, like attend classes and Mm -hmm. have discussions and do all these things these activities to make you think differently so yeah it's not gonna happen overnight you gotta you gotta sit through the angry conversations what drew you to michigan so i was taking a social work class because i thought i wanted to be a social worker for a little bit Mm -hmm. and then this was still like when i yeah, I was a sophomore, and then it was, like, I read an article by Dr. Lorraine Gutierrez, and mm-hmm. it she's just talking about, like, how the Latinx community in needs, like, different types of therapy. Like, we can't just be applying, like, therapies that were created for white people and assuming that they're going to work mm. for Latinx people. And that was, like, the first time I was like, oh, my God, like, I never thought about this, and someone's actually doing this work. And so... That's like when I started looking into Michigan. And then I found out that they have a summer program called SROP, so like the Summer Research Opportunity Program. And so I applied and I got in. So I spent a summer researching here. Yeah, that was like the summer before my senior year. So then senior year comes around and University of Michigan was like one of my top schools. And then I managed to get in. So that was, yeah, it was pretty dope. (laughs) The, the fact that, you know, the idea of therapy and 
therapy being aligned with certain groups experiences is very valuable just mm-hmm. because um i think of the the trans hotline that exists mm-hmm. now and how trans folks can call this hotline and speak with actual trans folks who understand what they're going through and yeah. are able to talk about it at length and i think that's very valuable and i think there is also like therapy for black women and their experiences and how valuable it is to actually talk to someone who has similar identities and has similar experiences because that way you're able to just actually feel the healing versus this like person who knows nothing about what you're about telling you these things yeah no i seriously like on a personal note like I started going to therapy when in undergrad and like I had some good therapists um, who were but they were like white women and it wasn't Mm -hmm. until like I came to Michigan and now I have a therapist who's a black woman and I have uncovered so much (laughs) with her and gone through so much healing in just a few months with her just because she like gets it and she there's just a certain you can be trained and go to the best university and read all the books and whatever but like it's just like some things it's just all about life experience so yeah that's totally fair in my undergrad experience our like therapy counseling programs were like backlogged for up to like six to eight weeks Mm -hmm. so you you couldn't actually see someone for you know whatever was going on with you for six to eight weeks oh which i gosh. think is yeah yeah so it was it was never something that i went to just because i was like you know six to eight weeks like i've got a life to live i've yeah. got <laughs> deadlines to meet how am i gonna just do that so much later and so i think it just spoke to my university and like how much i felt that there was a lack of interest in the students overall health mm-hmm and how a lot of it was just like phony diversity rates where it was just like yeah we just want students to come in give us their money but we're not really gonna put the effort in retaining them definitely i feel like especially now that i'm like more in academia i'm seeing like because i feel like in undergrad you like know that a lot of shit's going on behind the scenes and then like I i feel like i have like closer relationships with some faculty than like i did when i was an undergrad i don't know like you just see like how much everything is about funding because obviously like everything revolves around capitalism and so like now universities see that they can get funding if they like talk the talk about diversity and inclusion and all that but like Mm -hmm. they don't they put stuff in place but it's like okay do you actually keep up with it though like are you actually talking to your students getting their feedback or is it all just like the presentation yeah, it's like, what is your, your approach here? You know, like, are you doing this because you genuinely care for these students? Mm-hmm. Or is it because this is a requirement? Like, you know, a lot of schools got to have their program. You know, if not, then they're frowned upon for not, like, providing counseling or therapy to students. Yeah. So you've actually gone through the route to therapy. So how has, like, I don't know if you did it in undergrad as well. Like, how have you noticed the difference if you did? attending it as an undergrad versus as a graduate student where you're able to like notice these things more i mean so i think like your experience of having to wait like six to eight weeks i think that's really common in like large universities i will say like i was super my small college they 
always had like they only had like three therapists but we got to see them like pretty con like consistently like I would see my therapist every other week so like I was really lucky I got to have like a consistent therapy but that being said like they were always like interns and so then like you would like do all of this work come all this way with a therapist and then like they would have to leave versus now like I don't go I don't get therapy through my institution I go to another like community clinic and Mm -hmm. so that's been nice of like I know like she's not gonna leave anytime soon like I can like really engage in this work without like worrying that she's just gonna have to change jobs real quick so Mm, I see I think that's good in the sense that like it provides a sense of stability yeah and you're actually able to form this deeper connection and I don't know actually experience that versus just I'm gonna talk to this person and I don't even know if they're gonna be here definitely yeah Yeah. um what are you specializing in for your are you pursuing a master's right now or a PhD um I'm in my PhD program so I'm super excited because I'm almost done with my first year which yeah I like (laughs) so many times I did not think I was gonna make it through it and I Mm -hmm. did so that's exciting (laughs) yeah that's really good um I'm in psychology but I'm in like more like social personality psychology and Mm. um so I study racial and ethnic identity development so is this like what we talked about earlier of like looking in on structures and how they're affecting people and their perception of themselves and their role yeah exactly Mm. like I'm looking at like how like I'm particularly interested in like Latinx and black adolescents and like how they navigate the various messages that they're sent about their identity whether those messages are coming from like the white dominant society or their own like racial or ethnic group and like how do they make sense of it and like how can we use it to empower them to like resist systems of oppression from an earlier age so then like later on they don't have to do all this healing work that like so many of us are doing now no yeah i think that's really intense and you know it requires a lot of thought because the first thing that my mind jumped to was media Mm -hmm. and how how powerful media is and like socializing and creating this image of yourself Mm -hmm. so you know if like a person of color grows up listening to like conservative fox news then their perception of like you know black and brown folks is very negative yeah and versus if you're showing them things like you know black panther and the the video that we watched la diaspora and just like things that celebrate your identity from an earlier age you have a very different perception of like hey my heritage and my culture is very rich and complex And I got to celebrate it. So uh, I think it's, I don't know, media is just one thing that as sociology, as a sociology major, I was just always like, holy shit, this is literally what's conditioning people right now. Especially like since little kids now are like watching TV even like earlier. Yeah. I'm assuming we're at a similar age. Like my younger, younger years. Yes, Mm -hmm. I had TV, but then, like, I didn't have internet till middle school. Same, yeah. Yeah, but, like, now kids, like, have that all the time, so... (laughs) Have that tablet (laughs) at three years old, (laughs) like... (laughs) Yeah, and then, like, so have you heard of, like, the doll test? Uh, Oh, um, which doll is pretty? 
Yeah. Or, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely feel like such a good example of how kids from the media that they view, they're internalizing mm-hmm. the idea of, oh, like, white is good, black is bad, because mm-hmm. it, that's, like, the images that they're seeing. So I think it's so amazing that now kids do have stuff like Black Panther or, like, have you seen A Wrinkle in Time? No, I've been meaning to, though, oh just because God. I love the cast. I yeah. think it's really genius. But I also I, heard it got, like, negative reviews, and I'm like, y'all are just hating on this classic story. <laughs> yeah, like, seriously, I legit started crying in the film because I was just like, if I had this movie when I was 12, mm-hmm. I just, like, I needed that movie when I was younger. And it just makes me so happy that, like, now kids do have that movie. Yeah, no, yeah, like, as things are coming up now, I think it's one of two things. One, I guess Hollywood in general sees that this is, like, a money-making idea. Like, they can make money yeah. off of this because people want to see this. But at the other, on the other side, it's like, hey, it's a celebration that we don't really get to see of ourselves. So I think it's very powerful. And like you said, for a youth watching things like Black Panther, Wrinkle in Time, Moonlight... It's just, mm-hmm. like, these these very powerful images of people of color living different experiences that aren't the mainstream white culture. <laughs> what is yeah. white culture, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, like, the, these kids are going to grow up feeling very proud of themselves, and I'm really excited to see that happen. They're going to be, <laughs> like, little powerhouses all over the place, and yeah. they're going to fuck shit up. It's going to be beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. I think what I'm mostly interested in seeing change are ads because, you know, you can tell a lot about what society's values are based on ads. Mm-hmm. So I think of like the Carl's Jr. Hardy's commercials where like a woman is like, you know, half naked and these are like society, patriarchal society. Like this is how they view women. Yeah. And that's one example of like a society value. Like, I don't think it should be a value at all. Mm-hmm. But this ad is reflecting that to a certain, you know, market or audience. Yeah. And so I'm curious to see how commercials will change in the future to accommodate people of color and people of marginalized communities, you know, LGBTQ plus disabled communities trans communities like how are they going to be portrayed in the future for sure i do think it's interesting like something that you pointed out earlier it's dope that now we're seeing like more inclusion on tv but then it is like Mm -hmm. people like companies are commodifying these identities yeah. yeah and like these different movements for instance like the dove commercials that are all about like women embracing themselves loving themselves Mm -hmm. and it's like dope but at the same time it's just do you really mean that or there's like there's one company owned by like a larger company that also like does like x commercials those are like super patriarchal so okay over here you're saying like women empowerment but then you're also funding this company over here that's all about like pushing toxic masculinity yeah yeah so it's just like, you know that they're in that way, it's like, okay, so you are doing it just to make money. No, um, I think of one example. It's not really a commercial, but it's a brand, Drake. So Drake is a brand, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. But um, Drake is like hella fuckboy anthems, you know? He put yeah. them out there. Every fuckboy was like tweeting, I only love my mom and my bed. Like, you know, like these are things that he put out there. Uh-huh. And now he put out that song, Nice for What? And he features all of these women of color talking about how they don't have to be nice for men like why are they gonna be nice to men uh-huh. and i think it's really funny that drake 
put out that message when a lot of the time he's the one playing That's the other role. For sure. I actually haven't heard that song yet. I've been kind of like avoiding it because well, I was just like, <laughs> Kali Uchis and Cardi B released albums. So I was like, I'm yeah. going to focus on them. But yeah, I haven't seen it yet, but that is hilarious because Drake is a problematic fave, if I'm being honest. Yeah, but... <laughs> <Hi-key>. <laughs> Yeah, well, quote, quote, feminist cishet men are the worst because they like gaslight you into thinking that mm. they're like these amazing, like critical men, but really they like contribute to the same shit yeah and then like drake is high key one of those i thought it was like a publicity stunt also that he did that on cardi's big weekend Mm. you know like this is cardi's moment and then he's just like all right well i'm gonna drop a song celebrating lots of women of color yeah (laughs) look at me instead of this actual woman of color doing dope shit like (laughs) yeah i don't know shout out to cardi b she did so amazing it was a hard year for women in music but not if you're cardi b (laughs) yeah no for sure she's beautiful and gorgeous and did you see that apparently like um Nicki minaj like people were like trying to push her to release an album in april but then she was Mm -hmm. like no like i don't want to like have to compete with cardi b so it's like black women helping other black women shine yeah like making space for each other i just thought that was beautiful i think that's really wonderful like i think Nicki minaj is one of those celebrities that is very conscious of her role and her impact Mm -hmm. and so i think she definitely wants to give cardi this moment because i feel people are way too quick to pit them against each other also yeah just because they're both rappers but they act like there's no space for both of them when there's like yeah yeah (laughs) <laughs> and they've never ever been like oh i don't fuck with her they high key hype each other up yeah they're just all about each other and i think that's what one the rap industry needs a lot more of just like hyping each other up mm-hmm. and two what we need to see more of just because we don't see that enough for sure <laughs> yeah okay um do you have any questions for the pod um yes I was wondering, like, how did you guys... What was that process like when you, like, decided to do the podcast? How did you come up with what it was going to look like? Like, that whole planning aspect, I guess. Mm, Okay, so Sandra was the one that really got me into podcasts. She was always talking to me, like, about things on the group chat. And she was just like, hey, I heard this pod episode. Y'all should check it out. And so it was always her pushing podcasts on, like, putting them out there mm-hmm. and I think that's where I recognize the the importance of them and how relevant they're becoming mm-hmm. and I think the the idea that w- really gripped us was the emergence of Central American Twitter it was just something that we hadn't really seen before and that created a space for us to actually talk about our identities mm-hmm. that we don't really get to do especially growing up in like Southern California which has like a large Mexican presence and so I think it was really good and healthy for us in the sense that we were able to dive deep into it. But our approach was always like, hey, we're talking about our experiences, but we want to bring people on to talk about theirs and amplify their voices because we are a community and we don't get that opportunity to talk as much as we can. Oh, yeah. I seriously thought it was so dope. Like, I remember when I saw Puchigavos, like, I guess someone on my timeline retweeted you guys. 
Mm-hmm. And then I got so stoked when I saw it because I feel like I'm, for a while, when I was exploring my Latinidad, I kind of got, since I was so distant from it for so long, I was thinking that, like, I was embracing Latinidad, but really it was, like, a lot of Mexican culture. Mm, like Chicanidad. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so then, like, it was only, like, till recently I, like, realized that. And then with, like, Central American and Twitter and stuff. And so when I saw that you guys had a podcast, I was just like, oh, my God. Like, finally, I get to, like, hear from, like, other <laughs> Central Americans. Because still, like, I still feel like I'm, like, pretty distant from other Central Americans. Like, even here, like, in my program, there's only, like, my friend whose parents are, or her whose mom is from Guatemala. And, like, it's just us. I'm, like, a lurker a on Central American Twitter. <laughs> I'm more of a retweeter than a tweeter. But, like, I still... That space is so important. And I think it's so awesome that you guys kind of took it into a, the podcast realm. I, there's other Central American podcasts out there, too. And they're, they're doing really dope stuff, too. But I feel like Central American Twitter created this opportunity for a lot of, like platforms to emerge and people to like showcase their talents mm-hmm. and i think it's a really really important place yeah did you have any other questions for the pod well you've kind of answered this before like where do you guys like see it going yeah i think right now what we're really into is trying to bring on folks who have very unique experiences mm-hmm. that are that our central american audience either needs to hear about or wants to hear about just because i feel like they're the experiences that you know will change our perspective or Mm -hmm. will widen our lens of understanding and so i think that's the that's where we're at right now like how can we further amplify voices that otherwise would not have a platform or that need a platform so yeah i think that's where we're at right now that is so awesome and so necessary <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i'm really really proud of what we're doing right now and i i'm just hoping it gets better <laughs> no for sure you guys have already grown like so much yeah we, we sounded terrible <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, okay. So we're gonna go ahead and do the despedida now. So I I usually just like to do like a little self care like spiel of sorts. Okay. So yeah, what I want to ask you is, do you have any self care tips that you would like our listeners to know about? Oh shit! I've been thinking about this a lot lately. <laughs> yeah. I've been realizing lately just how much it really is like you are your biggest advocate. Mm. and like for instance like with me in school like I always feel so guilty when I'm not working on any on something and Mm -hmm. even if I'm like doing like self-care of like doing yoga or like oh I'm gonna go to bed right now like I'm still in the back of my mind still worried about all the stuff I have to do so it's like not really taking time for myself or just like and I would always attach it to my productivity like oh I need to do yoga so then i can like bust out this paper after so i would say like stop tying your self-care to your productivity and just genuinely like center yourself and spend time with yourself as a person just like how you set time aside to like hang out with like your family and you respect that time with like your family or your friends or your partner like you have to set that time for yourself and like honor it and not be distracted by everything else going on Thank you. That's a really good advice just because I feel like it's very easy for folks to just 
grind and like do the things that they have to do and unintentionally they can end up neglecting themselves and which results in like more pain and healing later on yeah that could have been avoided so thank you for that that's a really wonderful self-care tip my my self-care tip right now for y'all is to keep yourself accountable so you know a lot of times we like you said we we're pressed doing a lot of different things you know and that's just life <laughs> under capitalism you know you're, you're mm-hmm. not gonna escape from it at least not right now so i think one thing is just keep yourself accountable like if you say you're gonna do something do it and i don't want to glorify that in any way because accountability is hard mm-hmm. it takes a lot of work and i think that's that's where you you start to like look back and you're really happy with how you're doing just because you're able to actually keep yourself accountable like if you set goals for yourself and you like do all your work that you have to do to get there that's good like you are set and if one of your goals is like you said you know spending time with yourself connecting with yourself centering yourself if that's your goal and you keep yourself accountable to it it's only going to work better for you so that's what i really want to encourage